0: So, Christopher Bigelow, welcome to Mormon Stories. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. I I think I mentioned to you earlier that uh, my mom is a huge fan. So, anyone my mom likes, I'm a huge fan of as well.
1: Well, I sure appreciate your mother's uh, support for me and many others.
0: Why don't you give my mom a shout out?
1: Hey, Nan, thanks for everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. She'll love that. Okay. Well, um, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, I've read a lot about you online, and I'm sure our listeners—some might know you, and a lot of them probably have no idea who you are or why you'd be interesting uh, to to listen about. But I'm confident that they're going to uh, be glad that they stuck around. Um, but but as always, before we get into the meat of uh, sort of what it what it means and what it's like to be an author within Mormon LDS uh, book uh, the book industry. Let's hear your story, if you don't mind. So tell us a bit about your story.
1: Well, I do have a story, um, like everybody. <laughs> uh, I suppose I'm a sixth or seventh generation Latter-day Saint from uh, polygamists on both sides. Mm-hmm. So uh, luckily, I i say luckily, but I, I didn't grow up in Utah, and I think that is sort of lucky in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. Oh, wow. And, uh, but I did end up in Utah eventually. My parents, uh, I'm the oldest of 10 children.
0: Holy moly.
1: And my parents, down uh, in Southern California, when I came of age into the teenage years, I think felt that Utah would be a safer place mm. to raise their children. And so we moved here when I went to junior high school. I think it backfired in my case, though, to tell you the truth. What's that? Well, there was a bit of culture shock for me. Uh, when we got to utah and i i didn't necessarily thrive in in uh, being part of a religion that was also so socially dominant i feel like i'm the kind of person who likes to be different and so uh in order to be different here in utah means that you kind of move away from the latter-day saint culture in some ways and i did sort of do that
0: uh, as the old as he- the oldest brother
1: As the oldest brother, so yeah, you can imagine how my parents felt when they saw me. Uh, First of all, I kind of got into uh, Dungeons and Dragons.
0: Oh, the downfall of many.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it really kind of became an alternative religion for me in my teen years.
0: Did you dress goth?
1: I didn't uh, dress punk, is what I got into after Dungeons and Dragons, yes. So I kind of went from Dungeons and Dragons to uh, the punk scene, the early 80s. New wave punk scene. I okay. don't know how old you are. I don't know. If I'm,
0: uh, I'm 37. I uh, definitely went to high school in the 80s. Okay. So are we talking, Bla- are we talking Black Flag and, uh, you know, Dead Dead Kennedys, or what are we talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Okay, all right. Absolutely. All right. I'm with you. So
1: by the, time, uh, by the time I was 17, I left home and went and lived in the big, bad city of Salt Lake.
0: Oh, really on the edge.
1: Really on the edge. But I was completely uh, sort of uh, distanced from my LDS upbringing by age 17. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I went through two years of pretty much doing whatever the hell I wanted. Mm. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: Did you have sort of
0: contempt and scorn for the church at the time, sort of that teenage angst, you know, it's all stupid kind of thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the word I would use would be boring, Mm -hmm. would be the word I would use. Okay. And so I was in Salt Lake uh kind of in that whole alternative scene right in the middle of the uh, Mark Hoffman bombings. Oh wow. And the White Salamander stuff and that just fed the the cynicism and the skepticism throughout the the area as I'm, I'm sure you know. Yeah. Kind of doubting, you know, how the church could have been deceived and so yeah, I was real really stuck in that whole milieu of You know, I think when you have people in Salt Lake area who've chosen to distance themselves from the dominant faith, they do it with gusto. You know, you have to, because otherwise you'll get caught back up into it. Uh, And so I was definitely part of that whole uh, alternative scene. Uh, And I kind of reached a point where, you know, I developed certain habits that related to substances and other things. (laughs) Uh, and I could tell it was, I was about 19 years old, which is sort of a key age in Mormonism. I don't know if you know why, but... Sure. <laughs> I, I kind of reached the point where I felt like I sensed that if I were to stay on my path, I would be getting deeper into certain habits and and other... Opportunity might be the wrong word, but... I, I just felt that I, I could sense that I was at a crossroads. Right. And um so I, I naturally through some circumstances I was forced to move back home to my parents' home in, in Bountiful, north of Salt Lake. Uh you know, in one of those ninety five percent Mormon communities.
0: Yes. And
1: it was a good time for me to kinda of hunker down and, and ask some questions, you know, is that the path I wanna continue on? If not, what are some alternatives? And, of course, the M-word mission popped right into head at that age. And the minute I started kind of thinking, just playing with the idea of, you know, should I serve a mission, or what would that mean, or would it help me to kind of rediscover or reevaluate the faith that I'd been brought up with that then dropped, the minute I I started that, I began to feel that there was... uh, Kind of a spiritual force that wasn't very happy with that line of thinking, mm. I mean, I actually began to there was one night where I was writing in my journal late at night and was writing about some of these questions, and I actually had what I call a spiritual experience where I felt that the adversary I didn't see anything or hear anything but but I felt a you know a spiritual force actually come into the basement bedroom where I was sitting there writing late at night and Scared the heck out of me, Mm. and I interpreted it as, you know, don't you dare consider getting out of this program that I've got you into. Right. I think it was. I think it was kind of an intimidation move. Wow. But it was spiritually, it was very real to me. Uh, You know, when you talk about it, it, and even at the time, I, I wondered if it was some kind of a drug flashback or something. I mean, it was, you know, just an unusual sensation, but I, I've come to accept it as a an attempt by the adversary to sort of uh, intimidate me, and, and that helped me. Uh, what that did for me was made spiritual things sort of become more real, mm. and, and the logic that kind of started going through my young head was, well, if the devil's real, which I believe he is now, since he tried to, you know, intimidate me in some way, then Heavenly Father and the Church and all that must be real, too, and mm. so that's what kind of got me on my spiritual path. Sure. Because before that, I was just a completely
0: non-spiritual person, I would say. And were your siblings and parents just elated?
1: Yeah, I think they were quite surprised. My my parents admitted that they thought that if I ever did come back, it would be many, many years down the road. So uh, it was a, a gratifying 180 uh, for many people. And I was I was on a mission within six months. Wow. Today, the bar would be probably too high for me. The bar might
0: exclude you.
1: <laughs> it might completely exclude me, but, you know, this was almost 20 years ago. And huh. So I was able to probably got on a mission a little too quick, actually. But uh, that conversion, I call that my conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did go on to have some good, warm, spiritual times, you know, in a positive sense as well, through church experiences. Nothing quite so dramatic as that uh, one night in the basement. Right. Uh, but that's what kind of got me going. And I and, uh, was on a mission in Australia within six months. Did kind of that turnaround and quit smoking and other things. and Wow. Went on my way and I haven't looked back in some ways. In some ways I have, but in a lot of ways I haven't.
0: Huh. <laughs> Excellent. So, were you? Were you a what type of student were you in high school?
1: I was a low, uh, a low honor student. Okay. I barely made. I barely kind of crossed the threshold into uh, uh, pretty good academics. I think I was fifty something in my class uh, of a large high and school. And were you class.
0: a big reader, or did you write it all? You know, in those in those teen years, or?
1: Well, you know, I was a Boy Scout. Uh huh. Uh, through the church and I had to come up with an eagle project at one point because hmm. you know I needed to go the full I was still still in the church program then and that's isn't an eagle part of the uh, requirements for a celestial kingdom I
0: think it's actually been incorporated into the priesthood sort of uh, <laughs> program
1: yes uh, it felt I, like it was really important I think,
0: it goes, I think it goes deacon, teacher, eagle, priest I think it goes something <laughs> like that
1: that's about right <laughs> So uh, somehow I stumbled across the idea. I had been a reader. Loved reading fantasy, mostly. And somehow for my Eagle Project, I I, uh, I don't remember how I got the idea, but I thought I would put together an activity book for children in the hospital so that while they were in the hospital, they could pick up this little activity book that I would make. Oh, wow. It had coloring and uh, words puzzles and uh, riddles and jokes, and it wasn't a real big thing. But that's what I did. And I, you know, you have to get a couple other scouts to work with you as part of your leadership. So I had a, a few guys help draw some things and type some things, and we put together a little activity book and and uh, took it down to the local hospital, and that was my Eagle Project.
0: Do you still have a copy? I do. Do you have a digital copy?
1: Uh... I could maybe scan it. It was called The Daily Doctor. <laughs> Tell you what,
0: if, if you uh, if you scan that, I'll I'll post a link to it for Mormon Stories and we can have our readers check it out. Our listeners okay, check it, it out.
1: I should uh, scan that. Keep it alive
2: that way. I'll that's, do it.
0: But that's really neat. Okay, so you so were writing from an early age and reading from an early age somewhat.
1: Yeah, but then after, you know, about that time is when I was getting into that uh, Dungeons & Dragons game that I mentioned. Right. Which was just a for me, it was an, all, an all-encompassing, all imaginative thing that really took over my life. I think during my ninth grade year, I think I played Dungeons & Dragons every single day after school for five or six hours. Wow. And then on the weekends, you know, an equal amount of time. And in the D&D world at that time, there were a lot of uh, sort of amateur fanzines that were put out for the game. Mm-hmm. And I sort of connected with some of those, and somehow, I don't know if it was because I'd done that Eagle project where I'd put together a little book, but I got the idea that, hey, I could do a pretty good Dungeons & Dragons fanzine, or magazine, a lot better than some of these I've seen. Hmm. And so I, I did. I, I borrowed some money from my dad, and I put out an ad for subscribers in, in the big Dragon magazine, which is the professional magazine for the for the game wow i got two or three hundred people to subscribe to my little fanzine hmm. started uh i actually paid a few little uh well not little i paid a few illustrators and writers to help generate some copy and i i made some of my own articles too and ran a little dungeons and dragons magazine for about a year or two. Oh wow I think it got up to about a thousand circulation.
0: Holy moly, how were you printing it?
1: I My dad had his own business and had printing done through a certain uh, small printer that he knew, and they just went ahead and did my work too, but I paid for it with, uh, you know, subscription proceeds, and it was a fun, really kind of a fun thing. I learned a lot.
0: And they'd mail you checks?
1: Oh, sure. I, yeah, you know, I had a post office box, and people subscribed from around the country, and some stores carried it, and so it it turned
0: out to be really quite a did you go to conventions uh, and were you a celebrity?
1: You know I was only about fifteen <laughs> and there there was that that big uh, gen con convention that they held every year up over in Wisconsin, but not being of age i I never did get it together huh i I think it would have been a lot of fun but I was too young basically
0: wow, that's so, pretty yeah, that's, that's pretty entrepreneurial for a young kid.
1: Yeah, I got written up in the paper about it and, and mm. stuff like that. Fun. Deseret, the Deseret News, uh, and this is a pattern that's been repeated several times in my life with the Deseret News, is that they sent out a reporter to talk to me about this project, and the story got killed. Oh. And I think it was because, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is a somewhat controversial.
0: Yeah, had, remember those? had Bruce R. McConkie lived to really understand it, he probably would have added it to Mormon doctrine. <laughs> As a prohibition along with Ouija boards and uh face cards.
1: Well, there were there were uh, fellows making the fireside circuit preaching against dungeons and dragons in the church in those days, and so I think Desiree News didn't want to do a hmm. you know, an article about that. And that's happened to me several times with them since too, by the way. We can talk about that as we get down the timeline here if you want.
0: Okay. Yeah, for sure. So cool, that's a a great story. So what happened uh, post-mission?
1: Well, let's see. I mean, by then, uh, the bug of doing uh, magazines and publications was uh, firmly part of my system. So I remember while I was on my mission, about halfway through, I was pretty tired of it. Oh, really? (laughs) I was in Australia, and I was pretty tired of it after about a year. I think that would have been plenty for me is to do one year instead of two. Mm -hmm. But the reason I say that is because I got the idea that, you know, what would I rather be doing than (laughs) tracting? And I thought, you know, there was a little mission newsletter, but I thought, what if we made this into more of a a little magazine for the church in this area? Wow. I I had some ambitious ideas. I typed up a proposal, and I thought, you know, this will get me off the streets, and you know, I can can, uh, interview new converts, and you know, I had all these ideas for how to do a little magazine for that area, and of course they said, no, that's not part of the missionary program, you need to get back out there and...
0: <laughs> Knock doors.
1: knocking on doors, but it, it just tells you that that's where my thoughts, you know, often go, is what kind of publication could I do to <laughs> kind of engage in this community or whatever? Wow. So, uh, after, after my mission, uh, I had gone on a trip just to just a vacation trip to Boston before my mission with a friend. And I'd stumbled across this uh, interesting little college there called Emerson College. Mm-hmm. It's just a small college, about 2,500 students. Uh, it specializes only in communications. And uh, it just it kind of uh, stuck in my head that I would love to go there. And they had a good mag. Well, what they had was a program called Writing, Literature, and Publishing, that was their program. It wasn't called the English department.
2: Hmm.
1: And those, each of those three categories appealed to me a lot, and so I managed to get the grants and the student loans and go to Emerson College.
0: Wow, it's probably like yeah. thirty-five grand a year now, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, it, in 1980, 1988 when I started, I think tuition was twelve thousand just for tuition. Hmm. So yeah, it's on par with the uh, with the cost of the. Uh, ivy league probably Wow, wasn't wasn't as hard to get into or anything but uh, so yeah i had to pay off those student loans but while i was there sure enough you know i thought well what happened was i was in a magazine editorial class and we actually had the opportunity to think up our own magazine proposal and i thought hey let's not do a proposal let's do a real magazine so i started a little campus magazine there really yeah
0: what was it called
1: it was called, uh that's a little hard to explain. The name was uh Ralph Waldo Who?
2: Uh-huh.
1: The reason is because Emerson College, you think of Ralph Waldo Emerson,
2: right? Right. That right.
1: it was named after his cousin Charles Wesley Emerson, <laughs> in reality. And so I, you know, Ralph Waldo Who? I mean, who's that guy? Uh-huh. It was a name that, yeah, I don't know how well it worked, but that was the reason for it, and published uh, three or four issues of that, had a few other students that helped me as part of the class requirements and we went out, got on the streets and sold some ads to some local businesses and and it was a lot of another fun experience, you know, just solidifying my love of working with publications and especially magazines. Hmm. So that was a good experience.
0: Right.
1: <clears throat> and uh I don't know what you want to know next. I mean, there's there's been some marriages and divorces in there and stuff.
0: <laughs> okay, that's you're not the first nor the last.
1: Uh, no. I hope I I hope it's the last for me.
0: Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, uh, so so Emerson, you were there four years then.
1: Uh, I did a a year at the University of Utah before my mission. Okay. So three years. Three, three years, years at Emerson.
0: Then. Mm-hmm. What did you do when you graduated?
1: Well, um, I went to work at a bank, uh, and my job title was administrative secretary.
0: Now, was that hard to... to? I mean, you probably wanted to be the next who? What, Stephen King or, you know, J.R. Tolkien or whatever, and you go work for a bank?
1: Well, that's a good question, because I've, I've emphasized my interest in publishing magazines so far, but while I was at Emerson... Um, I got the idea that I'd like to try some creative writing. I hadn't really—I don't think I'd really done much of what you'd call creative writing. I'd done mostly magazine-type writing,
0: right?
1: And so uh, I was lucky enough. I took one fiction writing class um, with Pam Painter, and that was a great class and it got me started. And I felt that I really enjoyed it and maybe had some talent at it. And then I got into a uh, another fiction writing class with uh, James Carroll. Uh, who's pretty well-known. He's done some best-selling novels uh, many years ago, but then he's gone on to become... He won the National Book Award for a a memoir called American Requiem, uh, being brought up by a a CIA father and yet being somewhat of a peacemaker himself. And Anyway, enough about him. My point is is that he was a real impressive... um, very highly skilled teacher and he really encouraged me and he likes my writing a lot Uh, and so that kind of got me thinking you know i'd like to have a career like his if i could Hmm. write some books and so i i did i did during my undergraduate years develop the desire to become a some kind of a writer uh an author of books uh so yeah that that's where that seed was planted okay so I went to work at the bank and soon saw that I didn't have any corporate ambition didn't know uh, what future I mean, I, I kind of looked at the communications department the corporate communications department of the bank as being the only place where I might go with my writing proclivities but that didn't interest me and so I what do you do in a case like that you go to graduate school don't you?
0: yes of course <laughs>
1: So I did. I went through that process of applying, and I ended up at uh, BYU Oh, for a master's degree.
2: Hmm.
0: That must have been a shock to go from, a little bit to go from Boston back to Provo.
1: Well, the strangest thing about it was that every, almost everybody, in fact, I don't know of anybody who hadn't done their undergraduate degree also at BYU. Hmm. So here I came in. I didn't have any BYU enculturation at all and i i felt like i was joining uh very much a party already in progress
0: because huh.
1: it was mostly, you know people who just yeah. went went right into the graduate program and what and year
0: what year was this
1: i started there i believe it was uh i think it was 92
0: so it was right before, right as the cecilia Farr gail Houston sort of thing exploded
1: i was in eugene england's Mormon literature class when Brian Evanson came to campus from the university I think he was at the University of Washington and he came to campus to do his kind of his dog and pony show when he was applying for the professorship so he came into Gene England's class and he read, he read a story or two right
0: out of Altman's Tongue Wow uh, to the class Is that the one and about trying to resurrect Ezra Taft Benson? I think he did read that one Is that Altman's Tongue or is that a different one? I don't remember. Okay. I think there was something to do with cats. Okay. A story that has to
1: do with cats. <laughs> okay. I I don't remember exactly, but I was in that class, and wow. it turned out to be kind of a historic thing, of course, because uh, yeah, he went on to get hired and then get fired for the same writing that I think the department was fully aware he had done. But
0: hmm.
1: well, you know that story probably.
0: Yeah, a little bit.
1: So it was kind of an interesting time. I didn't know these other the other people, but that was. Uh, uh, contemporary with uh, what was happening with those other professors that you mentioned, too, I believe. Was you, you
0: didn't know Cecilia Farr or Gail Houston?
1: I did not. Wow. I did not uh, get to know them. And I you weren't plugged
0: them. into the their firings while you were there?
1: I was certainly aware of it. Okay. Uh, I wasn't on the front line of, of being... Uh, Protesting of, or anything. ...one of their students,
0: yeah. Okay. But, uh,
1: you know, I, I liked BYU in some ways. Uh,
0: How was Eugene England as a professor?
1: Um, He was probably my, definitely my favorite professor at BYU.
0: And did Uh, he stand, how did he, did he even uh, stand toe-to-toe with your Emerson professors, or?
1: um, Absolutely. I I would say he would have been in the top three, uh, counting
0: that college as well. Yeah, that's what I've heard. He was just amazing. uh, He
1: was amazing, And, and when I, you know, he had a big class, I mean, it was over 20 students for this Mormon literature class, but When I came up with my idea for the My Term paper, we talked one-on-one about it. He gave me some resources for it and just a lot of, you know, personal attention. And and plus his class sessions were great. Yeah, it was wonderful. That's one of my, I would say that's my single favorite class in many ways of my whole college career, undergrad and grad, was that Mormon literature class.
0: Yeah, we we lost...
1: It turned out to be a a real important class for me too, Um, because that's where I got turned on to the Association for Mormon Letters, the
0: AML. Right, founded by my cousin, my cousin um, Benson Parkinson.
1: Well, he founded the uh, the uh, email list version of it.
0: Oh, okay. There was it was
1: actually Gene, I think, who got the ball rolling on the association itself.
0: When was that? Do you have an idea for a year? It was a while ago. I mean, it was.
1: Uh, it might have been in the seventies. Seventies,
0: and, and wasn't Levi Peterson part of that too?
1: Yeah, Levi, I believe, served as president maybe twice. I know. I know he did at least once. Mm-hmm. Then he uh, did the newsletter for many years. Okay. And in fact, Levi Peterson was doing the AML printed newsletter uh, and wanted to rotate off of that. And that was when. In about 1999, Benson Parkinson came to me and said, Hey, the AML has this newsletter. We ought to make it into a real literary magazine.
0: Now, real quick, just for our listeners, most people have no idea what the AML is. Can you can you tell a little bit about why it was founded and, and what purpose it, it tried to serve uh, up until the time you got involved? Just a little background on it.
1: Yeah, okay, the Association for Mormon Letters. um, I believe it started because um, some readers and writers of Mormon literature started meeting together. In fact, I I remember reading that they even met in the church office building
2: Hmm.
1: because some of them were working in the building. and I don't know if it was a writer's group where they were exchanging manuscripts or if they were just talking about literature and trying to figure out how a mormon literature could be fostered but i remember reading something somewhere where gene england was president at one of these meetings and he uh had to go to some other function but he got up and said okay let's start this group and we've organized it and he he pointed to someone and said why don't you be the president and kind of and then kind of went on his way and and that was the beginning
0: (laughs) okay great and And before the internet the people would yeah, just meet go really to like meetings or what
1: well what they did is they formed an association to uh they did several things they they did hold an annual meeting uh where a lot of mostly academics could come and and give scholarly papers on all kinds of aspects related to mormon literature uh there were quite a few b y u professors who were heavily involved um And they they, uh, put together a proceedings and published it annually from that symposium. Hmm. So, you know, a nice book-length collection of scholarly papers on, like I say, all kinds of aspects of Mormon literature.
0: So they were writing about writing. They weren't actually doing fiction or poetry. Well, you know, some of those professors
1: also were publishers of of fiction as well. I mean, uh, John Benyon and Levi, of course, and... So you know they had their their fingers in lots of different pots uh, related to the the field of literature okay but it but it was academic uh, mostly analysis and and uh, research into the history of Mormon literature and current uh, practitioners of it. and I believe that there was some uh, reading of original creative works at some of the meetings and so it was, uh, I don't think it ever got real big in terms of membership. I think it, it's always hovered at around 100 or 200 members.
0: Okay. But
1: kind of hardcore uh, literary types. Right. Uh, and like I said, they had this small newsletter that, that Levi was mailing out of probably quarterly or something. Okay. And uh, Benson and I, we met with Levi and he passed the baton to us, and that's when we started uh, Erie Anthem, which um, was a great experience for me. Um, Benson was involved for about the first year, and, you know, we made a real magazine of it. We went out and got I think a lot of good original creative work, fiction, poetry, other forms. We did a lot of other things, too. uh, Reviews, essays about literature hmm. I did a series of um, interviews with a variety of Mormon authors and it was my impulse to go ahead and put those authors on the cover so the cover of the magazine usually had a, a prominent Mormon author's picture right on there and then an interview inside and recently uh, we've collected 28 of those
0: interviews in a, a new book yeah uh, we're going to talk we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, now was your was your Ariantum stuff before or after you're working for uh the Ensign?
1: I worked at the Ensign magazine. I started that. That came as a result of uh it came directly from an internship that I got at the church while I was still in grad school.
0: So Ariantum so Ariantham came after yeah, Ensign.
1: So I started at the Ensign in '93, and the started at the tail end of my Ensign time in '99.
0: Okay. So, so let's just let's real quick let's dive into your. Um, we can come back to the Ironton, but let's. You know, so you get a master's at BYU in, in English, uh, and you and you go work for the church for the Ensign. I did. And what? In the, tell us how that's structured. What's it like? to, you know, what's, what's it like working for the Ensign? How is it published? What are the quirks? What are the fun things? What are the interesting things? What are the frustrating things? Tell us what it's like inside working on the Ensign magazine.
1: Well, uh, as you can imagine, it's fairly structured.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, they, Because of all of the review by uh, Correlation and other internal departments, that was required the magazine had to be planned quite far in advance so uh, we were starting to work on issues almost a year before their publication date well wow. which is I, longer than some books you know yeah uh so that was one one thing is it is how long it had it took and then you know that correlation committee we hear so much about correlation and and uh and there you know there are some some good things that uh Correlation does for the church, but it was also it was frustrating uh, to have certain articles be uh, either gutted or outright killed by uh, correlation. Uh, while I was at the end sign,
0: do you, can you remember any articles that got killed that were particularly interesting or frustrating?
1: I think that the area of articles that got the most were most likely to be killed usually had to do with uh, the missionary program. Huh. If we wanted to run a a short piece about a, a missionary companionship that maybe was having trouble getting along, and then even something as innocuous as they sang a hymn together and, and things got better for that companionship, I remember there was a short piece along those lines that was uh, canceled because, you know, they didn't want to even imply that the way I interpreted it was they didn't want to even imply that missionary companionships could have any disharmony in the first place. Mm. Uh, uh, that's, that's the one.
0: Did, did you actually get a chance to talk to these, you know, uh, reviewers? Or was it all through, like, email or memos? Could you go and appeal or have a conversation with someone and say, hey, you know, come on, well, you know, let's do this here? Or... That did happen a
1: lot, but not at my level. I was an assistant editor. And I think the managing editor did a lot of uh, back and forth okay. uh, with the correlation committee, uh, and he fought some battles. And, and uh, I mean, he was a seasoned church employee. But even by the time I was there, he was still taken, uh, you know, blindsided occasionally by correlation. Uh, what? And I think,
0: hmm? well, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I think he handled it really well. I think he was real. I think he was frustrated a few times but I think he believed in the process and and uh, was able to get some things through that initially had been stonewalled. So
0: What were some of the other topics that were forbidden or canceled or or uh, problematic?
1: Well, I was there um in fact I was the editor I believe who um was able to get the first uh, same gender Type article into the magazine
0: oh wow there was
1: i think it was a personal account that somebody you know one of those name withheld uh personal articles about facing a a challenge and overcoming it. and i think it was me i really do that got the first one in that was about a fellow that tried to overcome same gender attraction and that would have been in about the mid-90s uh, and that, I think that had been killed a few times before, hmm. as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, but so that kind of got in, and then soon after that, uh, I believe it was Elder Oaks who did the first big uh, general authority authored article on same gender attraction that came out in the Ensign. That came out soon after this personal piece that I worked on.
0: Did you do? Well, was that an issue you believed in, and so you wanted to try and make that happen, or was it just what well, got assigned to you, or what?
1: I thought uh, I felt that it was an area that needed more airing and discussion in, in official church channels. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I did feel that, and I think that most people, everyone I knew of on the staff, felt that it was something we should be addressing too. So yeah, it was good to see that happen.
0: Any other issues or articles uh, that you're proud of or uh, embarrassed by?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I went on one of my most fun things about working at the Ensign is that two or three times a year they sent us out on reporting trips around the world to see how the church was doing in places like Taiwan or Australia or all over the world. So it was really fun to go on those trips. And... I you know the news was always good. <laughs> mm-hmm. We always we always came back with r- glowing reports of of growth and faith and wonderful things happening all over the world. <laughs> right. Of course there were a lot of things that we had to leave out, you know. <laughs> uh, inter, interracial problems down in Houston and and uh and uh, things like that, but uh those were some of the highlights for those big and, international trips.
0: And did that? Did that? Um, did that get to you? Did it eat at you? Did you ever? Did you ever feel like, hey, you know, we can tell the truth here. It might even be more inspirational in the end or more productive. You know, was that gnawing at you, or was it just you were just accepting, sort of in a zen like, this is how it is.
1: Um, there was a cert- at a certain level, I did accept it as it was because I, I saw some of the letters that came in from confused members even with what we did publish. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, people look to the ensign as a real source of authoritative church, you know, pronouncements and and people would get confused by the most innocuous seeming things that we published. Like what? So I could Oh, I remember There was an article about how to be a church organist or something to do with uh, people that play the organ in church. And we showed a picture of uh, a female organist, and it was from above. And so it showed her feet on the pedals of the organ and her hands on the keyboard. But I guess her dress or skirt was pulled up a little far because, you know, you need to have that knee... Uh, flexibility right. to use and we got a lot of mail about that, you know. <laughs> that we had showed inappropriate knees. <laughs> right. That's just one that I remember. There was a lot like that. Like uh there was a painting of some nephites that we used and I think you know how they try to make those Nephite uh Book of Mormon era paintings look sort of exotic. And I think I think someone had a, a male had an earring on
0: oh. in the painting. Oh.
1: You know, to make it look exotic, right? We, we caught a lot of heat for that. And oh, those are both kind of simple examples, but they they spring to mind as an e- examples of how people get pretty worked up about pretty minor things. And so I could see where the inside really had a responsibility to to try to keep things from upsetting people. And yeah, so on that level, I could see why it was the way it was. There was another level, however, where I was I got pretty bored with it
2: you bored. Yeah, yeah,
0: I got bored.
1: I, I did, I got bored. Um, because, you know, like I said, the news was always good, and, and I happened to be the guy that was putting together the news section at the back um, during the time when the small temples were getting up and going. Yeah. And so it seemed like every issue, it was just more reports of temple dedications just over and over. Yeah. And so I, I did, I got bored with it, and so I wouldn't say that it eight at me, necessarily.
0: You know, I, I do have to tell you, that that's my favorite part of the ensign. I jump right to the news section. Yeah, well, i
1: tell you the truth. That's where I go first now.
0: Now, they <laughs> used to, you may not know this, but they used to show like a chart of a church membership, and it always used to show how big we were and how big we were growing, and it was sort of this exponential thing that made you feel like the church was always leaping, and growing in leaps and bounds. Do you, do you remember that at all, or did they get rid of that? Sure. And yeah. I don't think they still do it. Are you sure? No, I'm not sure.
1: I think they still do some kind of demographic reporting in there.
0: I mean, I, I know that I every think. every May April conference that comes out in May or whatever, they they publish the stats. But I seem to remember like a chart. You, you think they still use it? I think they huh?
1: still do something. Okay. Now, are you getting at the are you getting at the idea that maybe the church isn't growing as fast anymore?
0: Well. Uh, that that's something I've thought about, and and I've actually heard that's not true recently. But also, uh, that the, the church actually is growing quite fast now. But um, but also uh, just that maybe they're trying not to emphasize numbers like they used to.
1: Uh, I don't. I wouldn't. I my impression is it's business as usual along those lines.
0: Okay. Real quick, before we jump off of the end sign, did you have any inspirational experiences? Any. Spiritual experiences, or, or, you know, run-ins with apostles, you know, anything uplifting or, or inspirational, that comes to, <laughs> comes to mind.
1: You know, okay, this is something about my personality. I knew I was at the end sign, and it was the church, and I had a little bit of a passive-aggressive side to my personality. Okay. So I would wear purple shirts. Oh. <laughs> I would, uh, when I was uh, editing conference talks, I'd have a little uh, Metallica playing in the background in my office. Huh. <laughs> this, was, this was kind of my way of of uh, getting my little digs in. And, uh, and so I don't know if that put me in a, cyn- a more cynical frame of mind, but I don't know that I had any... Uh, I can't think of any real major uh, spiritual experiences that I had. I'm sure there were many small, almost unrecognizable uh, moments of inspiration. I wouldn't deny that. Yeah. You know, like picking which article to include or or which person to interview. I'm sure I would like to think that all of the editors could be directed in that, and that I was too. I don't remember it happening. You know, and those Mormon journals, those inspirational stories, I'm sure my I teared up a little bit you know, in, in reading sure. or working. Oh, yeah.
0: Those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually I actually have, really like those, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some, uh, so I don't want to say that there was no spiritual warmth there for me, but I don't remember anything major. Okay. Um, and, in fact, like I said, I kind of had that side to my personality that maybe held me back from the, from the real uh, good stuff that, more earnest people might experience there. I don't know.
0: And did you did you ever get to meet or interview any apostles or general authorities?
1: I interviewed more seventies than I could tell you.
0: Uh-huh. Uh
1: huh. It was it was my job to often interview the new general authorities or ones that were heading up different church departments, and that was kind of fun to be the guy that was asking the questions and putting them on the spot. You know, and and a lot of real intelligent. Uh, men who I respected a great deal, but it was a lot of fun to to uh, get to know them and to sort of see them represent themselves to a journalist, as it were. Yeah. I, that was a lot of fun. Right. Uh, now, apostles, I don't believe I ever got to interview an apostle because senior editors handled that level. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I you know, I really had a lot of professional growth at the end, I mean, I learned how to interview write articles, do all kinds of things. So I really I really like my six years there. But one of the things I did right after the end sign uh, was the sugar beet. Oh. And I think it was somewhat of a reaction.
0: Oh, right. <laughs> sure.
1: You're familiar with the sugar beet? No,
0: tell us about it.
1: Uh, okay. I, I hope most people are familiar with the onion. Yeah, is, uh,
0: and for those who aren't, it's sort of a satirical web magazine that kind of mocks, uh, you know, current-day situations in a newsy kind of way. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it follows uh, the newspaper formula and approach, but it does totally satirical stories. Fake
2: news. Right.
1: And I just, I, I'm a huge I became a huge fan of the Onion, uh, late in my Ensign days, when at the same time, I was the guy putting together the uh, news at the back of the Ensign. So you can imagine that in my mind, you know, it wasn't
2: too <laughs> hard to start
1: wishing I could uh, spice it up a little. Uh, and so um, soon after I left the Ensign, uh, the Sugar Bee got started because uh, the way that got started was uh, I got a piece of Mormon spam in my email box. Hmm. It was from a company that was trying to sell uh, software for managing your food storage. It just struck me really funny. Right. You know, what other group of people would need software to manage their food storage in their own home? It it just struck me as funny. And I started uh, typing up some other fake Mormon product ideas and sharing them with people via email, and, and a lot of other people started doing it, too, and then, We started doing uh, Mormon news stories, fake ones, of course, satirical ones, and it really took off. I mean, uh, one of the guys put together a website, and then the next thing we knew, we were on the front page of the Salt Lake Tribune, and we had ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people looking at it every month, and it became a real phenomenon. It was a huge amount of fun, too.
0: Uh, What year, about what year was this?
1: Um, That started in, uh, you know, I guess it was 2002, right around the Olympics, I had left the Ensign in uh, about two thousand, so it was within within a couple of years after I left the Ensign. Huh? And that was that was one of the reasons why I left the Ensign is I wanted to be able to do projects like that without losing my job.
0: (laughs) Right. And uh, so, so ten thousand people coming to the website, huh?
1: Yeah, I mean, when after we got on that front page, and the Ogden Standard Examiner did a big feature on it too yeah that really kick started uh, our our circulation and we we took it pretty seriously for two or three years and did uh, regular issues every month or even more often sometimes and and uh, really had a fun a fun run
0: and did did people uh, donate um, we
1: I think we did ask for donations but uh, we just took turns paying the web hosting fee among the staff so I there's
0: no we- paper copy of it.
1: Well, you know, when our webmaster burned out two or three years into it, uh, we thought about what could we could do. Was there some way we could monetize it and bring in some income? And I did at that point go ahead and do a paper version. Oh. So in uh, about 2004 or so, we did a year's worth of paper issues, too.
0: So tell, I, I, I may be putting you on the spot, but can you tell us like some of the titles of the article's the, the, to give our listeners a sense for what types of things you'd write.
1: Okay, I'll tell you some of my favorites. Um, one I really enjoy is uh, uh, relationship with porn ruining, no, sorry, man's relationship with wife, or no, I'm, okay, i got to get this right. <laughs> okay, Man's addiction to wife ruining relationship with porn. <laughs> so it's kind of obviously turned it around, and the way the article was executed was brilliant.
0: Of course. Uh,
1: And uh, another one I really enjoyed was uh, uh, Gay Polygamists Make a Bid for Legitimacy.
0: (laughs) I've read that
2: one.
1: Yeah, that was one of my favorites. Um, Let's see, another one that was very popular was um, A New Gospel Slow Track that, that members could choose. Uh, it's If it was just a little too hard to follow the normal program, it was legitimate now with this new article to only go to church once a month <laughs> or uh, read the scriptures once a month. Or. It was like everything you were supposed to do daily in the regular church, you could go weekly on <laughs> and and right on down the line. That was another funny one. Uh, I could
0: go on. The, on. Is, there an, is there an archive anywhere where you can go read all the archives?
1: Well, um, we recently put out a best-of collection, Okay. a printed book, and we didn't actually get asked to remove an archive uh, of all our old issues. However, somewhere along the line, someone didn't pay the web hosting fee, or something went wrong with the website. Oh, no! I believe that it's burned on CDs in several people's homes, so it's not lost, but you can't get onto it online anymore. And you know maybe our publisher likes it that way because now we have the book that has a lot of those some of the best articles and future volumes. Are. Was
0: it was the was the URL thesugarbee.com? dot com?
1: Yeah, it was thesugarbee.com. dot com. Do you still own it? I hope so. One of our guys uh, was the one that registered it, and I hope he still has it registered so that we might resurrect it one day. I don't know.
0: Okay. So did you ever get any grief? Uh, did people ever consider you apostates and write you hate mail?
1: Well, you know what? I find that, as I've tried to engage uh, the LDS audience with some kind of edgy stuff, the Latter-day Saints are just excellent at ignoring stuff they don't like. Yeah. just yeah, They're great. It just, I mean, we're a polite people, uh, not really into a lot of confrontation. You do get some, and we have gotten some emails that, said, that stated the obvious, that we were a little irreverent at times. Yeah. Uh, but not as much as you would think. Huh, um, and I think, uh, and I think that's wise. If somebody isn't comfortable with what we were doing, the, the what we would want would be to get some email, you know, showing that we got under their skin. I mean, that just feeds our fuel. You
0: yeah, know? it gets you excited. And they oh, just, yeah. F-
1: when we would get the occasional angry letter, we would pass it around the staff and just really feed off of that. It was fun.
0: <laughs> they just didn't gratify you very often.
1: But but when people just kind of ignore you, that's not as fun.
0: No, that's unacceptable. But that's
1: what, but that's what you know, the LDS but you know, we had a lot of faithful people that, that were able to enjoy our humor, so
0: that's good. Okay.
1: We, a lot of people didn't, but you
0: know. Well I have to I have to tell our listeners that it's uh well you know, it's it's absolutely brilliant writing. What what's the name of the book?
1: Uh the new book is called The Mormon Tabernacle Inquirer.
0: And that's a, that is the highlights of the sugar beet.
1: Yeah, it's best of the sugar beet. Um, it really, it doesn't represent all the good pieces. I don't think. I hope we can do some future volumes as well. And this one is selling well. It sold out its first. We printed a I, the print the publisher printed a fa- one thousand copies to start. Who's the
0: publisher? Who's the publisher?
1: publisher. Uh, it's called Pincey Press. How do you spell that? P I N C E. Dash Nez, you know, it's those little spectacles that just sit on your nose. Huh. I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's kind of an interesting story. She's a, a she's a woman, uh, kind of a one man show <laughs> with her publishing company. Uh huh. But she grew up in Salt Lake as a non Mormon. Oh. So she kind of had a lot of baggage about the you know the dominant faith and she's published earlier humor books that were a little more pointed
2: uh...
1: against the dominant faith but when our uh, when our project came along she saw it as a as a lot of it was the humor she could still understand even though she wasn't born and raised a mormon Right, and she just loved it she thought it was a way to kind of build bridges in the community between mormons and non-mormons because it's always refreshing uh, when the Mormons, you know, can see the humor of their own culture. And so she jumped on it, and she helped us edit out some material that some people might not understand, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, it's been a great experience, and she's done a great job publishing it. She sold the first thousand, like I said, within the first month or two, and it has gone back to press and, and uh, really gets out there and gets it into the stores, and we're having a great time.